good evening. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. It's very nice to be here back with you. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views and reviews. And this week we are actually back to news, views and reviews because I'm back. No longer standing underneath a massive TV transmitter beacony thing at Crystal Palace. I am actually back at Venusian Towers. Thank you, everyone, for putting up with my pre-recorded shenanigans last week and the annoying crunch of gravel as I walked up and down. The end of last week's show, recording my thoughts on the Eisners. But much has occurred. And so we will get straight into it, starting with... going to start with a bit of well, bad news really about what is one of the oldest space probes that NASA still has in operation because they've had a bit of an oopsie with Voyager 2. Now when you consider what Voyager 2 actually is that's not that surprising because Voyager 2 is well just a one of the most remarkable achievements in space exploration. The only reason I'm not saying it's the most remarkable achievement in space exploration is because uh, it kind of ties for that with Voyager 1. It is the second human-made spacecraft to enter interstellar space. I make no claim for any alien craft that may or may not exist, Um, but it, it has entered the region between stars, a region which is mostly vacuum, and the bits that aren't vacuum are material that have been ejected by the death of nearby stars millions, if not billions, of years ago. It is also the only spacecraft to have studied all four of the solar system's giant planets at reasonably close range, as it flew past Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. Voyager 2 was launched on August the 20th, 1977, about two weeks before Voyager 1, which is a weird thing numerically and i don't know but i really don't know you'll have to ask nasa why voyager 2 got launched before voyager 1 did and why the one that was launched first wasn't voyager 1 i don't know it makes no sense let's move on however you number them and it will forever bug the living heck out of me that voyager 2 was launched first but whatever order they went in the two spacecraft were designed to take advantage of a very rare planetary alignment that allowed them to visit all of the outer planets using gravity assists. Uh, We've talked about gravity assists before. Essentially, you're using the gravity of a celestial body to slingshot you forwards, providing energy and acceleration to your orbit without needing to use fuel. It's a massive cheat and it's really clever. Anyway, this was an alignment of planets that allowed this to happen. Uh, And actually, they realised that they were going to be able to do this on relatively short notice. The whole Voyager project was put together in a space of a few years, which is, you know, by NASA standards, like like yesterday. It's it's like putting, you know, it's literally NASA NASA's equivalent of drawing stuff on the back of an envelope and knocking it together in an afternoon. Yeah, it really was incredibly quickly put together. Now, Voyager 2 made many discoveries 
during its journey. Uh, it discovered active volcanoes on Jupiter's moon Io. It looked at the intricacies of Saturn's rings. It discovered 10 new moons and two new rings at Uranus. And the great dark spot and four rings at Neptune. Voyager 2 entered interstellar space on November the 5th, 2018, or there or thereabouts, because there are still discussions going on about where interstellar space actually starts and the solar system actually ends. But there or thereabouts, November the 5th, 2018. Joining Voyager 1 as the only human-made object ever to have left the solar system. Both spacecraft are still sending scientific information about their surroundings through the Deep Space Network, or DSN. Well, sort of. We'll come to that. Uh, the current mission of Voyager 2 is to explore the outermost edge of the sun's domain and possibly beyond. Now, hmm. That, that has become more of a possibly than a definite. Because they've lost it. Or at least they've lost contact with it. Uh, Voyager 2 might well be a testament to human curiosity and ingenuity, but it's also a testament to how flipping difficult it is to hit a very small, rapidly moving target with a radio beam. Voyager 2 has travelled further than any other spacecraft. It's actually further out now than Voyager 1, uh, insofar as these things mean anything at those kinds of distances. And it has been continuing to reveal new information. NASA has, according to them, temporarily lost contact with the spacecraft due to an error that occurred last month. As oopsies go, it was, well, it's one of those things. It was relatively minor, except it wasn't, because when you make a minor error with something that is that far away, it becomes a major error fairly quickly. Basically, a command was sent. They have not said by whom. Uh, I suspect they do, in fact, know the answer to that question. Uh, I rather hope that NASA has a no-blame culture because, well, honestly, this is the kind of thing that could happen to anybody. Well, anybody in mission control, at least. A command was sent on July the 21st, which had the unintended effect of causing the spacecraft's antenna to point two degrees away from Earth. Now, if you look at a protractor, two degrees does not seem like a lot. Uh, but when you are as far away from the Earth as Voyager 2 is, two degrees means that, well, essentially, Voyager's antenna is now pointing at a spot in space, which does not now and probably never has and probably never will contain the Earth, which means we can no longer communicate with Voyager 2. It is currently 19.9 billion kilometres away. And honestly, the idea that you can shoot a radio beam from a thing the size of a small family hatchback to the Earth and hit the Earth from that distance is pretty impressive. The idea that you can shoot a radio beam from the Earth at a thing about the size of a large family hatchback and hit it. The accuracy involved here is mind-bending. It's like 
throwing a dart and hitting the bullseye on a standard dartboard if the dartboard is, and I'm totally making this up, I'm probably underestimating it by an order of magnitude, uh, but if if you're at one end of, if, if, you're at, if you're at Crystal Palace, where I was last week, standing underneath the great big radio ma- uh, TV mast, uh, which I mentioned because it's, you know, it's a, it's a good landmark. If you're to chuck a dart and hit a standard bullseye on a standard dartboard that was in a pod on the London Eye, rotating, that would not be as an impressive a shot as hitting Voyager 2 with a radio beam from Earth. It's incredible that we can do that. And when you consider that Voyager 2 is doing this with computers that were designed and built in the early 1970s, it's staggering. Absolutely staggering. Anyway, um, they've lost They've lost contact basically because the antenna is no longer pointing in the right direction. Now, NASA is trying to restore communication with Voyager 2 by using the Deep Space Network, which is an international array of massive, and they are huge, radio antennas. Uh, There's one in the US, uh, I think there's one in Spain, there's one in Australia. Basically, the idea is whichever way the Earth is currently orientated, there's going to be a Deep Space Network radio telescope that is pointing in the right direction to pick up pretty much anything. So NASA is using that to try and re-establish communication. They are sending signals to Voyager 2 uh, in the hope that Voyager 2 will detect those signals and reorient itself. Now, NASA itself says that there is a low possibility that this will work, and there's a reason why there's a low probability that this will work, is because the spacecraft's antenna is pointing in the wrong direction. It is not aligned in a way that will allow it to pick up signals from Earth. But you've got to try, right? Fortunately, if Voyager 2 does not, as seems likely, pick up those signals, the spacecraft itself is programmed to reset its orientation several times a year in order to maintain its antenna in orientation with the Earth. So hopefully, the next time it's due one of these resets, it will just reset itself to where it should be pointing and everything will be fine. That reset, that next scheduled reset, is on October the 15th. So we will keep our fingers crossed. Hello, Um, this is Reggie dropping in from the future. I like time travelling, it's fun. Um, just to drop in, that everything you've just listened to was recorded at the beginning of this week uh, on Tuesday, the whatever day that was. First, possibly that... Honestly, I don't have a calendar in front of me. I think it might have been the 1st of August. Whatever. It's now the 3rd of August. It's Thursday, the day that this recording will drop. And there is breaking news! Because NASA has announced it has picked up what it calls a heartbeat signal from Voyager 2, which means that Voyager 2 is still functional and still broadcasting, and therefore the chances that it will realign itself and communication will be restored on October the 15th, pretty good. 
So we're still keeping our fingers crossed, but we're smiling while we do it. Anyway, I now refer you back to past Reggie. So moving on, um, I, I very nearly didn't report this one because it's it's really, from my point of view as a layperson, it is really hardcore physics, which I'm not 100% sure I understand fully. And so I may struggle to explain it properly. But hopefully, if you are interested in this kind of thing, it will at least stimulate your interest further and alert you that there is a thing you need to go and look up. Because I'm really impressed by this. I think it looks, it's a stunning looking thing. And it does seem to be genuinely important in terms of demonstrating something that we thought was true and now we can demonstrate it is, which is always nice. But also helps us look at things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to look at. I'm talking about an Einstein cross. Now, I've known about the theoretical existence of these for a long time because I've read Einstein. Yeah, yay me. Uh, now, Einstein predicted the existence of Einstein crosses, which is why they're called Einstein crosses, back in 1915. And they are now used to study distant galaxies and there's a new picture of one which is why i'm reporting this uh but my reporting is not so much that there is a new picture of one of these but that these things exist and what they are so huh, deep breath let's go basically what, what you're looking at if you look at this picture and i know pictures are not really radio gold but just bear with me on this okay the picture is very simple it's a little bit fuzzy because it's been taken from quite a long way away what we're looking at is a orangey yellow point of light which is surrounded in a cross formation by four much brighter white points of light which are orientated around the central point of light um, more or less in sort of north south east west orientation not it's not quite perfect quarters that they divide that that they're in but yeah it's, it's more or less that so Great, it's a pretty pattern. What are we looking at? Well, the four smudges of blue haloed light around the orange point of light are in fact all coming from the same light source. The orange point of light is a galaxy. And the mass of that galaxy is bending light from an object be behind the galaxy from our point of view around itself. The background light is probably coming from a quasar, which is a young galaxy whose supermassive black hole at its core is using up huge amounts of matter, just attracting to itself huge amounts of stuff, uh, which is then blasting out enough radiation to shine more than a trillion times brighter than the brightest stars. Einstein's theory of general re re relativity describes that massive objects will warp the fabric of the universe, what Einstein refers to as space-time. Einstein postulated that gravity isn't in fact some unseen force. It is instead just our experience of space-time, which curves and distorts in the presence of both matter and energy. So the standard demonstration of this is that the fabric of the universe is a big rubber sheet. If you drop a massive massive object on it, like, I don't know, a really heavy ball bearing, that ball bearing 
distorts the fabric of the rubber sheet. And that's roughly what a massive object will do to space-time. If you drop a ping-pong ball on the same rubber sheet, it will affect the rubber sheet a little bit, but not so you'd notice. That's what happens when you have a relatively small object in space-time. So that's how gravity works, basically. Um, and that always, to me, seems counterintuitive because that's not how we experience gravity. But that is how gravity works. Right, OK, so that's that. That means that space always is curved. And this curved space, in turn, is responsible for how matter and energy move. If we go back to our rubber sheet, if you've got the rubber sheet with a heavy object on it, if you drop something like a, like, well, let's say a ping pong ball again, onto the rubber sheet after you've dropped the massive ball bearing on the rubber sheet, the ping pong ball will fall down the, the, the depression made in the rubber sheet by the weight, the mass of the ball bearing, and therefore fall towards the ball bearing. Gravity in action, in effect. Um, and light and matter always have to follow these rules. Even though light travels in a straight line, light moving through a highly curved region of space-time like the space around an enormous galaxy with a supermassive black hole at the centre, will also travel in a curve. It will be bent around that galaxy. Now, what that looks like depends on the strength of the gravity that we're, that's distorting the light, that's bending space-time, and on the perspective of the observer. In this case, Earth, the galaxy that's effectively acting as a lens, and is bending space-time and therefore light around it, and the quasar, which is, from our perspective, behind that galaxy, are all lined up, from our point of view, to perfectly duplicate the light that's coming from the quasar, arranging them, arranging that light in what we like to call an Einstein ring. Now, this particular galaxy, this particular lensing galaxy was discovered in 2021 by the Dark Energy Spectroscopic Instrument, uh, which is attached to a telescope at the Kitt Peak National Observatory in Arizona, uh, which has very clear skies and is therefore very good for astronomy. Uh, after that lens, that galaxy was found, astronomers did a sort of follow-stop, a follow-stop? Put your teeth back in, Reg. A follow-up analysis with the multi-unit spectroscopic explorer at the Very Large Telescope in Chile. Uh, yes, there is a telescope called the Very Large Telescope, and yes, it's very large, which is why they called it that. Astronomers sometimes can be heart-meltingly literal. Uh, but that's not important. What is important is the multi-unit spectroscopic explorer at the VLT confirmed that this is, yes, it's an Einstein cross. Now, Astronomers have discovered hundreds of Einstein rings, and they're sought out because they make pretty pictures, but these rings work to magnify the light they're bending, uh, in the same way that a magnifying glass does, which is why we refer to such, such galaxies as lensing galaxies. And reconstructing the light into its original pre-bent form 
can present astronomers with enhanced detail that you wouldn't see any other way, which allows you to have a really good look, a much more detailed look at objects like galaxies that are ridiculously far away. And you know, since we don't have the technology to just go and put massive lenses in space, this is the only way to do it. But it always makes me reflect that, my God, the laws of physics are brilliant, aren't they? That, that this is possible is mind-blowing to me. Were I of a theistic persuasion, it's the kind of thing that could convince me of the existence of God. Because the idea that this is done by chance, which is actually how I believe it was done, is, well, it seems a bit unlikely, doesn't it? It's so tempting to think that there's an, an intelligence behind it. I personally do not believe there is, but it's one of the reasons that I don't point and laugh at theists in the way that a lot of atheists do. Anyway, enough of that. This isn't the boring preachy part. Uh, it might be the boring part if you're not into astrophysics, but it's certainly not supposed to be the preachy part. Anyway, um, because the extent to which light is bent is dependent on the strength of the gravitational field of the object that's bending it, Einstein rings can act as a cosmic scale for gauging the masses of galaxies and black holes. Effectively, it's a massive cosmic weighing scale. Studying the distant light warping around these, these gravitational lenses into these rings can even help astronomers see things that would otherwise be too dark to be seen on their own. So, this research has recently been accepted, this research about this particular lens has recently been accepted for publication in the Astrophysical Journal uh, and is available as a preprint in, in, on the preprint database, which I would give you a link to if I still did show notes. I'm unlikely to get to do show notes here. Um, I would suggest if you want to know more, you Google it. There's a very good article on life science. Uh, if you just Google life science, rare Einstein cross, that should bring it up. Uh, that has links to the uh, preprint. If you want to read this and you don't want to bother Googling, just email me info at destinationvenus.co.uk and I'll send you a link to the life science article because it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, but I have confused myself enough now. This is the kind of, of physics that utterly melts my brain. I know there are people out there that find it really, really simple. And I, I, I have so much respect for people who find it that easy. Uh, I do not find this easy, uh, but I do find it fascinating. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think honestly, I, I'm going to leave space there and go off and talk about something that I understand a little bit better uh, and just let my my brain cool down just for a second. Okay, so while my brain cools down, let's have a think about something else. Now, this is the point where I would normally be dropping in a review of something like Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Can confirm I am completely up to date as I record this with Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Uh, and if I don't talk about this week's episode, there are three episodes. I'm not quite sure how this happened, but there are three episodes that have occurred 
that I have not reviewed on this show. And that's going to remain the case for a while because I've come to a decision. I've talked already about the uh, Writers Guild of America strike and the Screen Actors Guild strikes. Now, under the rules of the strike, members of the Screen Actors Guild are no longer permitted to go on to the media, whether that's talk shows, podcasts, whatever, in order to promote work that they have done, are doing, or may do in the future for any of the studios or producers that are involved in the strike. That is to say, the people who will currently not give writers and actors a fair contract. Now that that raises a quandary for people like me. At the moment, the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild of America are not calling for people to boycott their subscription services like Paramount Plus or Amazon Prime or Netflix. Which is good, because that means I can continue to watch my shows with a blissfully clear conscience. However, the unions behind the strike, which I completely support, do not want those shows to be promoted. Now, I do not flatter myself that anything I say or do on this particular show has any real impact on the viewing figures of any of the shows that I review. I don't think I'm that influential. I certainly am not influential enough to be able to have the actors or the writers who make these shows on my show. So the fact that someone like Anson Mount cannot go onto a show and do an interview about being Captain Pike and what might happen in Strange New World Season 3, that doesn't affect me one tiny little bit. He wasn't going to come on my show before the strike, he won't come on during the strike, and he's not going to come on the show after the strike either, because he doesn't know who I am, and if I were to try and contact him via his agent, I'm pretty sure that that is an email that's not going to get read. So, in a very real sense, it does not affect me. However, as somebody who supports the strike, I do think I am kind of morally and ethically bound to abide by its restrictions. I'm not a member of SAG. I'm not a member of the WGA, uh, but I do support them. And they do not want shows to be promoted. So I'm not going to. And I want to talk instead about why I'm not going to and why it matters to me that I'm not going to. Uh, I don't think this is going to be the boring preachy part. I am going to try and keep it short. Uh, I do actually feel the need to explain myself a little. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Look, if you if you have no interest in the politics behind the entertainment industry and the way I think that they should ethically affect me, fast forward three minutes. Yeah, which, if you're listening on Harrogate Community Radio, means um, don't put the kettle on. Nice cup of Yorkshire tea. Be lovely. So, why am I not going to review Star Trek Strange New Worlds or any other show that I am watching for the duration of the strike? Right, well, here's the thing, right? I am not a member, as I said, 
of any of the unions involved. So I am not bound by their rules. I can do what I like. However, I do support those unions. Now, strikes are a pain in the neck. They have negative consequences for everybody involved. That is kind of the point. They have a negative effect on the employer who the strike is being taken against. They have a negative effect on the people who are on strike. Nobody likes being on strike. It's not a thing you do for fun. Okay. If you are on strike, you are not getting paid. That is a problem. It's one of the things that makes a strike so powerful. It's a demonstration by the people who are taking the action that we are prepared to suffer this hardship in order to make the point we feel we have no other way of making. That's how much this point that we are trying to make means to us. This is not a frivolous thing that we are doing. We are suffering because of the action we are taking and we are prepared to accept that suffering in order to achieve an aim that we feel is worth that price. There is always collateral damage when this happens. Uh, as a teacher, I went on strike for precisely one day out of 16 years. Hated it, hated it, hated going on strike. I did think it was worth it, but there was unintended collateral damage in that action. Uh, all the kids that it was my responsibility to teach did not get taught on that day. Further, all of those kids who would have been at school were not at school on that day, which had an effect on the parents of those children. Because although I will argue all day long that as a teacher, my job was never childcare, the fact remains that if you are a parent with children and you have a full-time job, the fact that your children are at school all day means you don't have to worry about where your children are and whether they are safe. And on a strike day, that is no longer the case. And if you are a parent, I get that that is a problem. Likewise, the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild of America strikes, while they do cause hardship to the writers and the actors on strike, and before anybody says these people are millionaires, yes, yeah, some of them are. Yep, some of them absolutely are. Most of them are not. Most of them are going to struggle to pay their rent during this strike. And we'll, we'll come to that in a separate bit of news later on. All right. But don't at me with that, because just don't. In this case, the collateral damage is quite serious, actually. If you are somebody who is not a writer or an actor, but is involved in the film industry, maybe you are a caterer. Maybe you are an electrician or a set builder or a makeup artist or any of the other vital trades that are used by the film industry. Right now, you also have no work, which means you're probably also not getting paid. And in a country as as backward as America, that means you probably don't have health insurance now either. So the strike is hurting people who are not involved in the strike. Now, I can pretend, I can very easily pretend that none of this is happening. I can just go on doing my show the way I do it. And just pretend there's no, no problem. I can do that. I can just keep reviewing the shows and have that content fill up the airtime that I have to fill. I could do that. Ethically, however, I can't. If I support the strike, and I do, then it would be unethical of me to not 
accept the negative consequences of that strike. Now, the negative consequences of that strike, as applied to me, are minimal. But I should accept them. So, for the duration of the strike, there will be no more reviews of films or TV shows that are made by the companies that are currently in dispute with the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild of America. I appreciate that for some of you who hate the amount of time I spend reviewing these shows, that this is something of a relief. Don't get used to it. Sooner or later, the strike will be over and I will be reviewing these shows. But for now, that is my final word on all of those shows. Not even going to mention them again. There is news about the strike, though. Uh, you may have seen, if you are on social media, that several, and I, I'm not going to name them all because there's too many, several of those actors, it is mostly actors I'm seeing here, I suspect some of the writers are doing the same thing, that those actors who frankly are not hurting as a result of the strike because they are incredibly rich, because they are incredibly famous, well-paid actors who have made a fortune by being in movies and TV shows. Several of those people have put their money where their mouth is. Uh, most notably, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who has made a seven-figure donation, which means in excess of a million dollars, to the strike fund. Uh, George and Amal Clooney have done the same thing. Many other of the big-name, wealthy actors have done the same thing. And that matters too. It also matters that these people turn up on the picket lines. Now, I've seen photographs of big name actors on the picket lines on social media uh, with comments underneath them along the lines of, huh, well, you know, you're going on strike for better wages. Look at you. You're a billionaire. And I do just want to point out that that is a wrongheaded argument because what the big name stars are doing by showing up on the picket line is showing solidarity with the actors and the writers who don't make a lot of money. The ones who barely scratch a living, but who do provide the entertainment and the shows that we love. The background actors, the, the writers, the, the actors in the small shows, the actors who play the small speaking parts, the ones who do not attract large paychecks, the ones who are paid basic scale, the ones who most of their work probably they don't get paid for at all because there isn't a lot of money in the arts. There just isn't. Those people are already struggling to pay their rent. They're already struggling to put food on the table. Then they went on strike to try and get a better deal so they would struggle slightly less. But that means they're not getting paid at all. And that means they are going to struggle. The strike fund, as donated to by some of these big name actors, can be used to alleviate that suffering a little bit. We do not have any data or any information suggesting that any of the money from the SAG or WGA strike funds is being used to help those people who are not involved in the strike, uh, but who, as mentioned earlier, are not able to work now because there's no production, so no work to do. I hope it is. If it isn't, then I think ethically 
the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild of America have some questions to answer. Uh, I will be asking those questions and seeing if I can report back next week on whether anything like that is happening. I hope it is, but I don't know that. What effect that is going to have on future publication and future production is still an open thing. Uh, there have been some casting announcements and some casting speculation, which I am not going to talk about or report on until after the strikes. Looks interesting, though. Clearly, there are plans among the studios for what is going to happen when the strike is over, however it is resolved. It is the case that some productions have been moved out of America into countries that do not have uh, WGA or SAG representation in them, and production on some productions is continuing in places like Thailand using local labour, which is not affected by the strike. Um, I'm from South Yorkshire. There's a word for that where I come from. It's not a pretty word. I'm not going to use it on the show right now. Um, but I disapprove of that kind of action and will not be supporting in any way any production which has taken such action, uh, which is a bummer because one of them is something I was really looking forward to and which I'm now not going to go and see. So, yeah. Generally speaking, though, the strike is beginning to push back release dates. It is beginning to mean that things that should have been starting production are now not starting production. And so, honestly, the effects of this are going to be felt for some time as there's going to be massive delay in the release of some things that people are looking forward to. And it, it is going to mean that some projects that would otherwise have happened are now not going to happen. And, you know, that sucks. Hate it. Hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. Um, my ire is, however, not directed at the people who are currently on strike. It's directed at the people they are striking against who do not seem to be nice people. But we'll leave that there because... I've just spent an, an, an extraordinary amount of time telling you that I'm not going to tell you anything. So, yeah, uh, I think I'm going to add talking about the strike to my moratorium on talking about the stuff affected by the strike, unless there is actual news, something important that you actually need to know. So that will be my last word on all of those subjects for some time. Breathe a sigh of relief. So what am I going to talk about? Well, I'll tell you what. One of the reasons this show exists is because I own a comic shop. I know. It's the best job in the world. I don't I don't know how I keep getting away with it. But so far, nobody has stopped me. I don't understand it either, but it's great. And so what I am going to do is talk about comics more. So from next week, you can expect a lot more chat about comics and what goes on in and around them. I'm going to start, however, this week with some recommendations, because I know not everybody listening to this is a comics fan. And that is something I'm going to work to change, because if there aren't going to be films and TV shows for that thing reason we're not going to talk about, you're going to need other entertainment. Last time that thing that we're not going to talk about happened, we ended up with loads of reality TV shows, and I am not in favour of those. 
So you're going to need alternative entertainment. And ladies and gentlemen, I am going to suggest to you that one of the best forms of entertainment is reading comics. You can read books if you like, but actually comics give you something that prose cannot give you. It's hard to explain and it's better if you experience it. So I am going to promote some comics. But because, as I say, a lot of you are not comics readers, I'm first going to give you some some stuff that you might enjoy that will introduce you to comics and make comics a little bit more accessible, I hope. I'm going to start with some podcast recommendations. I've spoken before about Word Balloon. This is a show presented by a guy called John Suntris. Uh, he's a radio guy from Chicago. Lifelong comics fan. Lifelong science fiction fan. Uh, he also will talk at length about Star Trek, and I don't think he's going to stop talking about Star Trek. So if you want a very different opinion on Star Trek Strange New Worlds, um, you could listen to what he's got to say about it, because he's less positive than I've been. Let's just say that. Uh, but what John Suntris is really good at is talking about comics. He clearly loves them and comics clearly love him. He gets on his show all the big names, the real rock stars of comics go on his show to talk about, well, you know, comics, comics present, comics future and comics past. If you want to know about the, the, the history of comics and the lore and where all of this stuff comes from, Word Balloon is your show. Uh, so just Google Word Balloon Podcast and you'll find that. Um, there's also, if you want to hear somebody talk with massive amounts of enthusiasm about comics, there's a show called Observations, which is presented by a guy called Rob Liefeld. Now, Liefeld is a controversial character within comics, shall we say. I spent most of the 90s being incredibly negative about this guy. He was one of the big name Marvel artists who left Marvel in the early 90s to found a little company called Image Comics. Image is now one of the biggest publishing houses in comics. It's one of the more interesting publishing houses in comics. And it has a unique setup. It's, it's run by comics people for comics people. The people who own Image Comics are all comics writers or comics artists, or both. They are all dedicated to creators' rights, which means everything that is published by Image Comics is creator-owned. Image Comics don't own anything. It's all owned by the people who make the comics, which is not something that can be said about, well, most of the other publishers, to be honest. Now, I was not a fan of Liefeld because I felt that Liefeld was everything that was wrong with comics in the 90s. I didn't like his art style. I didn't like the type of superhero comic that he wanted to make. And I was quite negative about him back in the day. Listening to his show these days, I don't think I would still agree with Liefeld on very much. However... He is a fascinating and quite funny bloke who knows a lot about comics, having been involved in comics 
for the better part of 40 years as a professional. And I personally do not like his art. I've realised that it doesn't matter whether I like it or not. I don't have to look at it. Other people do like his art. That's all that matters. And because of his fairly unique background in comics, he's got some interesting observations to make. Now, his podcast, Observations, started during the pandemic. He's kept it going. And what I like about it is not necessarily that I agree with him, because I often, as I say, do not. But I love the pure enthusiasm and joy that he still has about comics. It's infectious. And honestly, if you are new to comics, he's an interesting guy to listen to because you just get from him a sense of how much pleasure comics can bring to your life, as well as some interesting information and some facts. So I recommend that to you as well. I'm also going to recommend again a particular comics creator uh, in the form of Rachel Smith. Now, I have recommended Rachel's work many times. Uh, she is the writer artist behind Wired Up Wrong, behind Stand In Your Power, behind Glass Half Empty, behind Quarantine Comics. Uh, and she's currently, uh, as a fairly new parent, She's currently writing something called Nap Comics. It's the same format as Quarantine Comics. It's 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 short form, four panel stuff, um, black and white, and being published online, more or less every day. Uh, it's it's very introspective. It's very autobiographical. Uh, it's very much like Quarantine Comics. Only now, instead of being something that she does every day to alleviate the boredom of being locked indoors because it it's a pandemic. Uh, now she writes these little comics whilst her little boy is either breastfeeding or asleep. And I have found them to be an absolute joy. It's just a little moment of reflection and quiet and peace that I, that just happens in my day now when the next one of these pops up. I really enjoy them. And they show you a side of comics that I think people who don't know comics don't know exist. So if you want to see a side of comics that isn't superheroes or giant robots, that isn't about fights and battles and all of that stuff, if you just want to see comics, do just quiet little stories. It's a really good example and available for free. Uh, you can follow uh, Rachel Smith online she's currently on whatever they're calling twitter these days uh as at rachel underscore that's rachel with an a so it's um r-a-c-h-a-e-l underscore uh or you can and i would encourage you to do this because it helps her and she is providing these things for free after all uh you can subscribe for free to her webtoons feed which will make it easier for you to find the latest editions of her naptime comics. Actually, it's called nap comics, I think. Um, so that's my first recommendation. We're going to get into a little bit more of what comics are, as well as what comics you should be reading next week. Uh, but for now, 
we're going to leave that there. I think that's probably enough homework for me to set for you for now. But that does not mean that I do not have my educational head still on, because it is time for this week's Wonderful Woman of Science, who I confess is perhaps more of a wonderful woman of STEM. But hey, the S in STEM is science, so I'm going to let it stand. We've not had an astronaut for a while, so I would like you to cast your minds away through space and time to the 17th of March, 1962, to a place called Carnal in the district of, or possibly province of uh, Haryana, which is in India, which is not a place you would necessarily expect an astronaut to come from. And that is part of the point here. Because this is the time and place that Kalpana Chalwa was born. She had a fairly normal Indian schooling, uh, but growing up, she went to local flying clubs and watched planes with her dad. And she graduated whatever the Indian equivalent of high school is, and she went on to take a uh, an engineering degree uh, or an aeronautical engineering degree uh, at the Punjab Engineering College. Um, uh, Haryana State is in what used to be called Pun uh, Punjab, East Punjab State. Um, and she moved to the United States in 1982. Uh, and while she was there, she went to the University of Texas at Arlington uh, from which she took a Master of Science degree in Aerospace Engineering from yeah, in 1984. And she went on to win a second Master's and then a PhD in Aerospace Engineering in 1988 from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Now, the reason she'd done this is because she wanted to be an astronaut. And India at the time did not have a crewed space programme. It was one of the it was the time basically in the 80s where if you wanted to fly in space, you had to be either American or Russian. And so she became American. She became a naturalized American citizen. And in 1988, she began working at the uh, NASA Ames Research Center, where she did computational fluid dynamics research uh, on vertical or short takeoff uh, and landing concepts. A lot of her work um, was included in technical journals and conference papers. And in 1993, she joined Overset Methods Incorporated as vice president and research scientist specializing in stimulation of moving multiple body problems. Uh, this is really high level gravitational orbital mechanics kind of stuff. It's a big deal. Uh, uh, by this point, she held a certified flight instructor rating for, for airplanes, uh, for gliders, and she had commercial pilot license for single and multi-engined airplanes, seaplanes and gliders. That is a serious bit of pilot skill there. This is somebody who is clearly determined to become part of the astronaut corps and is getting those skills sorted by herself. As I say, she became a US citizen in 1991 and immediately on doing so, she applied to join the astronaut corps. 
Uh, she joined the Corps four years later in 1995 and was selected for her first flight in 1997. That first flight uh, was STS-87 aboard the Space Shuttle Columbia, uh, which launched on the 19th of November 1997. She was part of a six astronaut crew uh, and she was the first Indian woman to go to space. Um, on her first mission, she travelled, and we'll do this in miles because it's NASA, uh, somewhere between 10.4 and 6.5 million miles in 252 orbits of the Earth. She logged more than 367 hours, that's 15 days and 16 hours, in space. During STS-87, uh, STS is, incidentally, uh, just stands for Shuttle uh, for Space Transport System. And it was the what the shuttle program was officially called. So this was the, and it wasn't the eighty seven doesn't mean it was the eighty seventh mission. The, the shuttle numberings are weird, but anyway, that's the name of the mission. During STS eighty seven, she was responsible for deploying a a satellite, the Spartan satellite, which malfunctioned, uh, which necessitated a spacewalk by two of the other astronauts on the crew, uh, Winston Scott and uh, Takei Dow Doi. Uh, to recapture the satellite. Uh, she was, however, exonerated of all blame. It was not her fault that this thing... She was in charge of the launch, but it, it, the fact that it went wrong was not her fault. Um, errors in the software interfaces were identified, um, as were errors in the defined procedures of the flight crew. So, essentially, the, her part of the mission was doomed before it launched. Uh, they, they just got it wrong on the ground. She was then assigned to technical positions in the astronaut office to work on the International Space Station. She was then selected for a second mission. In the year 2000, she was selected to be part of the crew of STS-107. This mission had been repeatedly delayed because of various technical issues and problems with scheduling. Um, such as, uh, in July 2002, they discovered cracks in the shuttle engine flow, flow liners. And, you know, this is post-Challenger. So they were unbelievably cautious. But on the 16th of January 2003, uh, Chawa finally returned to space aboard the Space Shuttle Columbia on the STS-107 mission. And she was part of the performing of nearly 80 experiments studying Earth and space science, all kinds of stuff. Was going on including ironically the way things turned out astronaut health and safety now if you are a space geek you already know what happened next sts 107 was the final flight of the space shuttle columbia and it was the final flight of the space shuttle columbia because on re-entry or post re-entry as the, as columbia returned to earth the shuttle broke apart was destroyed with the loss of the entire seven-person crew. Um, that was, therefore, the end of her career. But what a career it was. What a remarkable, what a remarkable set of achievements. Um, she... 
went on record in her first flight as saying, you are your intelligence. That's everything you need to be. And her point was, she became an astronaut because she worked single-mindedly with devotion and dedication towards that goal. Everything she did in her life from high school onwards was in pursuit of that goal. Her message was that with the right amount of hard work, you can do that too. Now, I'm not sure I completely agree with that. I think you also do need to be incredibly good at what you do. I strongly suspect that had I wanted to be an astronaut, which I did, and had I devoted my life to becoming an astronaut, which I did not, but had I done so, I suspect I still would not have been an astronaut. I don't think I have the right stuff. She clearly did. And I hope that people are inspired by her career and not put off by her untimely death. Space is dangerous. The Columbia mission showed us that space was dangerous. It also showed us that space could be a lot safer than it was back then. Uh, she was killed along with her crew because during the launch, a chunk of foam that was being used to insulate the external fuel tank broke off and smashed into the heat resistant tiles that were supposed to protect the shuttle from the heat of re-entry. That was correct. As a result, superheated plasma um, during re-entry got into the crack and did what hot things do in confined spaces. It expanded, uh, it destroyed the tile, uh, that exposed the chassis of the shuttle to the heat of re-entry, which caused the weakness, which caused the thing to break apart in the air. It was unfortunate and it never happened again because once they realised it was a possibility, NASA took precautions to make sure it never happened again. So many ways she made space a safer place. Look about Kalpana Chalwa. When you talk about women in space, when you talk about determination, when you talk about the need to be dedicated to what you want to do, always, always take inspiration. And that is about all we have time for right now. A quick glance at the Geek Community Notice Board reveals to me that I haven't written down any dates of any of the things that are happening. Uh, I do know that in addition to the Geeky Movie Quiz, there is the D Geeky Disney Quiz coming up. Um, I have something going on at Harrogate Library at the end of this month, uh, about which more next week. And um, there's all kinds of things going on at Geek Retreat. Uh, I, I, I'm just going to mention them these days and point you at their social medias because there's far too much for me to list. Uh, although I will just drop in again the uh, Harrogate Pride event on August the 26th. Uh, that is happening at Geek Retreat and at Major Tom Social and should be a whole lot of fun. So there's that going on too. Uh, but for now, that is all we have time for. We will be back next week with more comics with more science, with space, with a wonderful woman of science and all manner of other good stuff, just not, nothing about film or telly. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to absolutely everybody else. And above all else, stay geeky. This has been a Venus Rising Media production. 
we will see you soon.